0: Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Over the past two decades, we've seen an almost great migration as more and more Americans move from suburban and rural America to cities. The trend cuts across all demographic groups, but has especially been true for both millennials and empty nest boomers. As a result, our great cities have experienced skyrocketing rents, displacement of the poor, gentrification, and protracted conflict between NIMBY homeowners and landlords and renters. What was once a local debate has become a national story. How it plays out is a kind of microcosm of our collective values and how we see our communities in the first quarter of the 21st century. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Randy Shaw. He's a longtime housing activist and founder and executive director of the Tenderloin Housing Clinic. He's written landmark laws and ballot initiatives, improving housing code enforcement. He's also worked with builders, to get new housing constructed in San Francisco. He's the author of several previous books. His latest is Generation Priced Out, Who Gets to Live in the New Urban America? Randy Shaw, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me, Jeff.
0: In your view, what has been the tipping point that brought us to to this point today when even in places where nothing's being done about it, there's conversation about housing, about affordable housing, rent increases taking place in cities all across the country. What was the point that this really started to change?
1: Well, I think people saw the real impact around 2012 and, 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 you know, there's cities, you know, like my city of San Francisco or New York city or parts of other cities had become increasingly gentrified and expensive, but sort of the wholesale shift that made Austin, Seattle, Portland, Minneapolis, Denver, uh, Oakland, and many neighborhoods in LA that had not been expensive 10 years ago and became expensive really became when the economy, after you know 5 or 6 years of, of very little of economic growth from like 2007 to 2012 when it finally recovered and the tech second tech boom came we sort of the the decades of all of the cities i mentioned not building enough anywhere near enough housing hit home so it was kind of like we hadn't it was like a game of musical chairs where there was a big demand it wasn't met. And then when suddenly the prices went up and the demand and economic jobs happened, suddenly we paid a price for 30 years of not building enough housing. And that's really what where we are today. And that's why it led to such a response from millennials who are coming in out of college, owing, you know, maybe $100,000 in student debt. And they're paying coming to San Francisco and seeing one bedroom is going for 3500 So it, it, it led to questioning why in the world aren't we building more housing?
0: And, of course, the other side of the argument is that because it was neglected for so long, because that housing wasn't built, that it is almost impossible, if not impossible at this point, to catch up. One thinks about New York during its boom in in the early 2000s when they were adding 30,000 units a year and it barely kept up with demand and it certainly did nothing to bring down rents.
1: Well, as I described in, in Generation Price, New York City is an exception. You have, What you had in New York City is both under Bloomberg and de Blasio, you have upzoning with the purpose of gentrifying and displacement. That's been the goal of New York housing policy. I describe how in Seattle... You're using, and in some sense, San Francisco, you can use density bonuses and increase height to expand affordability. So these, it really comes down to who you want to live in your city and how you zone your land. And in most of the cities, even the progressive blue cities, most of the buildable land you can only build a mansion. You can't build an apartment building. So when you can't build apartments and only mansions, gentrification and and high income affluence is what you have in your city.
0: In San Francisco, where there's been a bit of a building boom of late and where, what, five, 6,000 units a year are being added, it, it barely makes a dent.
1: We had one year of, of close to 5,000. Seattle builds. Is a smaller city than San Francisco, and it builds over twice as much housing. So we really haven't, but we're doing better than we used to do, as I described. I mean, the culture of San Francisco has changed, and politically there's more support for building housing. But people would be surprised to learn that in in tenant San Francisco, a tenant town, over 50% of the available buildable land, you can only build a mansion. You cannot build a fourplex. Did that, that might surprise you even I mean right. because you think of you don't think of San Francisco as a place that prevents apartments from being built, but it, it does
0: and talk a little bit about the Push back to building apartments, the pushback to building denser and higher, where that's coming from.
1: Well, that that's sort of like one of the major themes of Generation Priced Out, and I think what distinguishes it from other books about the cause of gentrification, because most books talk about big developers and big projects, but what I, what I show in city after city is most of the gentrification occurs because boom, primarily boomer homeowners don't let anything get built in their neighborhood. And so when you look at the biggest gentrified neighborhoods in places like San Francisco, it's places like Bernal Heights, Noe Valley, the Castro, the Haight Ashbury, none of which will have any housing development, and where, the, and that's true in so many other parts of, of, of Los Angeles, where the hillside owners, hillside areas, where Nut Bel Air and the expensive areas, where nothing ever gets built, and yet. Prices have gone through the roof because of the artificial supply scarcity. So I think that's what we're really coming to in city after city, the recognition that you can't just ban development. It's failed. The strategy of stopping gentrification by stopping housing has failed. And you have to build more housing, and Seattle's already seen a sharp reduction in in rents and home prices by building more housing.
0: When you look at a city like San Francisco, how much housing has to be built, in your view, to begin to make a difference, to begin to bring some of those rents down?
1: Well, that's always a question people say. Is you, can never, you, you can't build your way out of the housing crisis, and that's absolutely correct, uh, but you also cannot build your way, not building does not get you out of the housing crisis. I, I always say this, we need to expand. The theme of my book is we need to expand opportunities for working and middle-class homeowners, working and middle-class families to live in big cities. Can every, can we build enough housing? So every working and middle-class person wants to live, who wants to live in San can do that. No, but we've never been able to serve everybody, but we can expand our supply. And what's happened is many people say, well, We can't house everybody, so we shouldn't house anyone. Under that theory, we shouldn't build any affordable housing because we never can house everyone who needs it, right? So we need to serve a great – San Francisco and other high-housing-cost cities can house a lot more working and middle-class families if they follow the prescriptions in my book about rezoning and creating tenant protection and rental housing protection strategies – to make sure you achieve that goal of expanding the supply because our cities aren't aren't doing a good job of keeping the working and middle class here.
0: Are the solutions to some of these problems – and you look at not just San Francisco that, that you've written about a lot before, but you look at the whole country and some of these other cities, and, and you mentioned Seattle and Denver and Austin and, and, and New York and Los Angeles – are the particular solutions in all of these cities sui generis to the cities themselves, or is there a certain universality to what needs to be done in all of these places?
1: There's absolutely—what I learned in writing, in writing Generation Price out, there's really a universality. I would say that, I mean, clearly the number one thing that has to occur across the board for tenants in the United States— is the federal government has to, has to provide the rent subsidies that it doesn't provide to 75% of eligible households. So we have 75% of eligible households, federal housing assistance who don't get it, which is why we have homelessness and the terrible problems with housing among the very low income. But in terms of people who aren't eligible, who earn too much, who have jobs, and who earn too much to be eligible for federal assistance, we need to build more housing everywhere, and we need to protect tenants better, and we need to stop the demolition of rental housing everywhere. The solutions are surprisingly uniform. Where they distinguish is where many states, for example, you cannot have rent control. You can't have rent control in Seattle. You can't have rent control in Portland. You can't have rent control in Austin. You can't have rent control in Minneapolis because the state legislature has banned cities from enacting it. That's a problem. So those cities have to use one course of action, but cities where you can have rent control, even even California and New York, do not have the strong rent control they really need.
0: Does rent control really help? This was a big debate with the initiative that was on the ballot last year.
1: Right. Yeah, well, rent control is essential. It, it, there's no other strategy to keep tenants in place. I mean, what they're trying to do in Seattle, which is a great idea, and other and I recommend it for all cities where you can't have rent control, is to tie increased height and density to developers. So in exchange for giving them two more floors, you, you require them to have affordable housing with tenant protections. Otherwise, Every time a neighborhood, you know, no matter how long you live in a place in Seattle or Portland, if a landlord gives you a notice, you have to move, and that's just not, a, not a moral thing, and it's not productive for, to increase for cities to do their affordability. We we have to stop the states from interfering when cities are doing a good job on affordability. The states shouldn't interfere as they've done in California. And that state ballot measure, there was no way a measure like that can pass when you have seventy million spent on the other side. This is Prop Ten. Right. Uh, but but also, you know, you had uh, you had Wall Street firms. Stephen Schwartzman uh, of his fund spending twelve million dollars because they speculated in single family homes as rentals, and the measure would have returned rent control to single family homes. So you had a lot of special interest money coming in uh, to to outcome that sway of that election.
0: What value is there in looking back towards the suburbs or even the closer-in suburbs where so many people have left single-family homes, where there, there's a higher vacancy rate in some cities in, in single-family homes, and can some of that land be used for denser housing?
1: well I think the the challenge, and this is what I people say to me all the time when they say, well, well, Randy, you talk about millennials wanting to live in cities, but when they get older aren't they going to want to move back to the suburbs and and I say no I mean if you look at all the trends that everyone's done, I think we might look at suburban america jeff as a as a as an isolated time in our nation's right. history from the post World War Two to the to the eighties or seventies. Because starting in the late seventies, what we used to call the yuppies came to the cities, young urban professionals. And the trend has really just continued. Millennials don't want to live in the suburbs. So poor people are now living in the suburbs and because there's greater opportunities, jobs, cultural opportunities and transit, to live in a city. And young people often don't want to drive cars. So living in a city is essential.
0: And and we have to take that into account because you hear so much. I mean, you've touched on an important point, I think. We hear so much in in this debate that it's going to change, that the trends are going to change. There's no indication of that. Every indication is that cities are going to keep growing.
1: Yeah and and you know I have two adult children and none of their friends live in the suburbs. I mean, you don't even it just it, people don't live in suburbs. And so th- this is why the the troubling thing where when our boomers say in places like Berkeley, oh, we don't want we don't want any apartments in our neighborhood that's basically saying go live in Sacramento and then we have 120,000 people commuting every day from Sacramento to the Bay Area. That, that's the worst thing imaginable for climate change. And the reason we're not meeting our, our air resources standards and climate change goals in California, ambitious as they are, is because we have homeowners who don't let apartments be built and require people to live and commute by car long distances. Look at Los Angeles where we both grew up. I mean, Uh, I describe in in Generation Priced Out, just the standard hour car commute that people have to work, work to make to their L.A. jobs. That's not environmentally sustainable.
0: The other aspect is that we're seeing a whole group of boomers looking to empty nester boomers looking to move back to the cities at this point to add to the problem. That is...
1: Well, that is a fact that many are not aware of, that, that in San Francisco, you saw it, there's, there's a huge influx of boomers coming because they, they, they don't want to live in the suburbs themselves anymore. Uh, and that just increases housing demand and explains why we have to build more housing. Because one of the problems when people say who are anti-development from the left is is – I don't see their solution to population growth. I mean, we had, um, L.A. has added a million people since 1970. So if you don't build a lot more housing, where are those people going to live? Uh, they're going to live an hour commute away, and, on our, you know, right? And it's true for all the cities we talk about, which are experiencing huge traffic problems because we've exported our pop, the job population outside the city due to restrictive zoning.
0: We've also done something, I mean, San Francisco is is somewhat unique in this respect in that it, it is a reverse kind of commuting situation where we have young people that are living in the city and that are working out in the suburbs of Silicon Valley.
1: Well, that is a separate kind of thing, that the Silicon Valley problem, which has really bedeviled San Francisco's housing stock, and I describe in Generation Priced Out, how the consequences of when you have all of those jobs being added in Silicon Valley starting in the late 90s and no housing be built at all. Now, fortunately, the YIMBY movement, the people young, the, the you know, Yes in My Backyard movement have been, has been really building in those areas to get housing built. There's a lot of pressure on Cupertino, uh, and and cities like Palo Alto and Mountain View to build more housing. San Jose is totally on board because they, they see the same problem of, of housing inflation. But we just had Apple come in and add, announce in December they're adding 10,000 jobs in Austin. Well, where are those people going to live? They're going to displace existing residents unless Austin builds a lot more housing, Right. That's the whole problem in New York City with Amazon's second headquarters and what Amazon did in Seattle. When you keep adding employees with no housing, then the price of rent and homes go up.
0: How much of this has to be building that is initiated by public policy and by the cities as opposed to the private sector?
1: Well, see, that's a great point you're making, Jeff, because people often say, you know, why isn't tech building housing? Why isn't Apple and all the and, and Oracle, why aren't they building housing in these cities? Well, it's because the city government isn't requiring them to. And we have to keep remembering that if the city, when Oracle, I describe in the book how Oracle, there was a 240-unit apartment building with low-income families on a lake in Austin, and suddenly they all got eviction notice, so they didn't understand what the plans were, and then now it's an it's an Oracle plant, it's an Oracle campus. So, <laughs> You, you have the loss of 240 low-income housing units for an Oracle. Now, did anyone ask Oracle to provide any housing? No. The city didn't ask them to do anything. So it's up to our city councils, and that means it means the power with the people, because we elect the city councils. We elect, right? So we need to elect people who will, support, who will say to these corporations, wait a second, if you're going to bring all these jobs, and you've got to have a housing component.
0: One of the other aspects of this is the murkiness in, in really a lot of the public consciousness about what's meant by affordable housing. When we talk about affordable housing, low-income housing, what that really means and, and kind of the way in which those buzzwords, in many cases, set off a debate that's more about the language than it is about the reality
1: yeah you you start getting very wonky cuz you start using AMA just for median income and 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 people you know there's been stories national stories gee in san francisco if a family of four earns 120,000 they're eligible for affordable housing well they're eligible for certain units you know not most of them are still but when median incomes go up which means the the, the how many people on one if so the median income for a single person in san francisco is 60,000 which means that there's as many people uh earning under sixty as over sixty. It's a very high median income. That means all of the federal and state formulas for affordability which are based on median income are based on that. So people will often say, gee, so you can make seventy five thousand a year in San Francisco and get, get affordable housing. Yeah, because seventy five doesn't go away. the rents are very high. You have to look at how high their housing costs are. And a teacher who makes seventy thousand dollars in San Francisco can't afford a studio apartment because they go for two thousand a month.
0: Part of what we're doing also is chasing the problem around the country. When San Francisco becomes untenable, then there's talk about more companies moving to Austin, and then that becomes impossible, and then people move to Denver, or pick the city you want. But we seem to be chasing the problem around the country.
1: Well, I think what we have not done in this country is, is, is connect employment with housing. And that's that's the core problem that that happens in all the cities I talk about in Generation Priced Out, which is that that if, if you – there's a connection. We all know there's this called the jobs, housing imbalance. But when you continue to make it worse, I mean, New York City did not need – Long Island City did not need Amazon's second headquarters. There was no need for it. They could have gone to a place where there was a need for jobs, but there was low unemployment in those areas. Same thing with Austin. They didn't need more Apple, 10,000 more Apple workers – but this is, the, the tech, the employers want to go to the areas where they have a certain population, high-educated, college graduate, you know, tech population. Right. And so you have this in L.A. With, with, you know, Culver City is now being taken over by, you know, there's, uh, Google has just opened up a big thing in Culver, in Culver City. Uh, in, in West L.A., actually, they just took over a whole former a former shopping mall in the right. West Side Pavilion of L.A. is now going to be a Google place. That's what's happening in Los Angeles. And where are those workers going to live? Because L.A. doesn't build enough housing. I have a whole chapter in Los Angeles how how L.A. is an example, how s- neighborhoods that no one ever imagined could be gentrified, like <laughs> Highland Park and Boyle Heights, because they're in, in the central part of L.A. with poor air quality. Well, Highland Park's now gentrified and The battle, which I describe in the book, is to save Boyle Heights. So it goes neighborhood to neighborhood when you don't build housing, give more options in existing neighborhoods.
0: To what extent have you seen good examples of public policy that is effectively addressing some of this?
1: Well, I think clearly the, go, what they're doing in Seattle, where they've they vastly built housing in many of the so-called urban villages, and, and what they call their mandatory housing affordability plan, which says, says to developers, if you we'll give you two more floors in exchange for you having 30% affordability and protecting tenants. That gives tenants affordable housing and, and tenant protections, which they can't have because there's no rent control allowed, and... It, it creates an increased supply. So I think Seattle's doing good. Denver's tra- and, and Denver's also doing something. They build a lot of housing. You have to... Cities have to use their public land for affordable housing. And that's been... A, a real surprising struggle. You think all these progressive cities would say, hey, we can't find land. We don't have places to build affordable housing. And then they have their public land, which they then sell to the highest bidder. I, I described in the book how in, in, in a part of Brooklyn called Crown Heights, which is a dra- rapidly gentrifying part, there was an armory available block size armory perfect for affordable housing in a gentrifying neighborhood and mayor de blasio wants to make luxury condos and i described the big fighter on that so so that's what cities can do and many cities oakland just passed a law about public land and san francisco is now trying to do a better job but you have to be more strategic and, and that's what our blue cities have failed to do so much which is why i wrote this book because the policies we actually have in place are helping to displace future middle and working class families, the direct opposite of what we claim we desire.
0: The irony is that we're having this struggle and these problems at a time when there's an awful lot of money floating around. There's a lot of money coming into these cities. This should be the ideal time to address some of these imbalances.
1: Well, you're absolutely right, and and you know the governor of Calif. We had a governor, uh, the previous governor Jerry Brown, who had many positive features, but he did not believe in spending money on affordable housing. And now Gavin Newsom's coming in with an extraordinarily ambitious housing plan, long overdue. But you know we we've had all this money in the state coffers, and we haven't spent on affordable housing. It, none none of it. Governor Brown didn't believe in spending any general fund money, and so you're right. And now we're finally going to start seeing it. But one of the things is, even with the money that we get from the state this year, you know, it takes time to build housing. And, and, and I, I had an order, I had an op-ed in the San Francisco Chronicle on the Sunday about San Francisco's housing approval process, which takes three and four years to get it approved. So, So even when the money is allocated, if you're going to have an approval process that takes three or four years, which is twice as long as Seattle's and almost longer than any other city, then the housing, even when you have the money, it doesn't come into play because it takes so long to get stuff built. So that's an example of how cities are are using self-destructive policies to worsen their housing crisis.
0: The other thing that we're seeing is because it is so expensive to live in these places, and and the middle class has been driven out, there are less and less workers to build these projects, and that's another reason they're taking so much longer
1: well no you're you 're absolutely right, and you know I mentioned the Santa Rosa fire really affected Northern California right. construction as a whole because from the time of that fire it 's been very very hard to get people to work in San Francisco, and the prices have gone up because there 's a scarcity you 're absolutely right uh the 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 labor force isn 't there to build the housing we need, but then you have to address that then because we have a lot of people who' would like to be in that that those jobs and we have to create those jobs and and San francisco 's trying. Uh, but it's all sort of hidden. Really, what, what's happening in California and across the nation in 2019 is we're all paying the price of, of really 30 years of not building and not addressing those kind of core needs of creating housing to meet population and job growth. And it's really very simple when you spend 30 years and then people say, gee, suddenly there's a big problem. Well, you can't reverse 30 years of of not building in in five years. It takes 10 years. It takes, even you know, because we're so far behind and the population continues to increase.
0: And of course, many of these cities had very aggressive, no growth policies for so long.
1: Absolutely. And you have entire neighborhoods where nothing ever gets built. You have, uh, you know, places like Boulder, Colorado and Palo Alto, which just they they they, just, they they love the way the city is. They don't want anything built. And you have, so it's really becoming like retirement communities because young people cannot afford to ever live there, unless they're rich. Uh, and you have people who just in their 70s who say, "I like the way it is here in Boulder or Palo Alto. We don't we don't want we don't want any people here. We're happy," and and that's really what what I describe in Generation Price out about the, the generational divide over housing. Millennials need housing they didn't have the cheap housing or more affordable housing that, that, that boomers were able to get. And that's why they're mobilizing politically to change the dynamic and and they're, and they're having success. I mean, Minneapolis just got rid of single family home zoning and of course, single family home zoning was originally racist in its basis. It was done to keep blacks out. All these laws were passed to stop apartments after the civil rights laws said you couldn't restrict legally on the basis of race. So we have a situation in America, we have all these blue cities, who are operating under originally racially based single family home zoning. And that's what's under siege right now in a lot of cities. And I think we're making progress.
0: And finally, Randy, do you think that we're actually, and as you look at cities around the country that are actually addressing this in a significant way, or is a lot of it just Band-Aid solutions to try and paper over the bigger problems?
1: No, I think, I think Minneapolis and, and Austin is going to move, and I think Seattle and even San Francisco. I, I, think, I think we're seeing, and LA is moving forward in the last year after a lot of problems with neighbors opposing projects. No, I think it's, it is structural. I don't think it's a band aid approach. And, and, you know, I do write about uh, a lot about what's going on with housing, and people can follow me on Twitter at BeyondCron. That's at BeyondCron, and that's what I end up tweeting about. And I also, my book's website is Generation Priced Out com. So you can read all the reviews and our interviews with me and learn more about the book at generationpricedout.com.
0: Randy Shaw, the book is Generation Priced Out, Who Gets to Live in the New Urban America. Randy, I thank you so much, as always, for spending time with us. Thank you, Jeff. Thank
1: you.